All right, well, let's show our appreciation to those children's ministry workers. We appreciate you. Uh, just before we get into things, um, Pastor Steve mentioned some emails you can send this week to uh, either Pastor Matt or to himself. Uh, one thing you can do if you'd like to receive uh, the Pastor Blast, every once in a while I'll send out uh, something that I want you to think about during the week. Maybe it's an article, maybe it's a, you know, a sermon link. <clears throat> if you just, on the connection card, write your email address and say, I'd like to receive the Pastor Blast, We'll set it out. And I just say that because we've got a number of people on that list already. But this week, I'm going to send you a link to a, a message by Tim Keller on marriage, because we're going to be talking about marriage uh, next Sunday. And uh, for the first about 15, 20 minutes of it is just up, up to date uh, some stats about marriage that I'd love for you to just have in your mind. I don't intend to spend 15 to 20 minutes next Sunday walking through those, but it'd be neat if those were in your mind. So if you'd like to receive that email, uh, then just put on the connection card that your email address and that you'd like to receive the pastor blast and we'll get that out to you. All right, well, good morning. Great to see you. Would love for you to open your Bibles now to Genesis 1, chapter, or Genesis 1, verse 27. That is on page one in your pew Bibles. And you're thinking, why are we still on page one? Uh, It's three weeks in a row we've been on page one. And that's because we're doing foundation work and we're going to broaden out our foundation a little bit further today. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that we are humans created by God. And we wrestled with all the glorious implications of that truth. And then last week, we talked about the fact that we were made image and likeness of God. We talked about what that means. And now this week we're talking about the fact that he made us male and female. In order to properly understand this issue, we're going to have to root ourselves in two foundational texts. So you're going to start on page one and probably by the time we're done we're going to be on page two or maybe even page three. So hold on tight. Uh, There's a good reason why we're going to do that. Uh, John Hammett and Katie McCoy in their book on biblical anthropology put it this way. They say, Genesis 1 reveals humanity's relationship to the Creator, while Genesis 2 reveals humanity's relationship to each other. In other words, the first creation account introduces humanity and the creation mandate, while the second account details how humanity will fulfill that mandate in harmony. So we need to look at both of these accounts in order to have a conversation that is fully orbed on this topic of gender. So today we're going to read the text, then we're going to zoom out, and we're going to talk about God's original design for gender, then we'll talk about how gender has been affected by the fall, and then we'll talk about how gender ought to be approached within the redeemed community. Hopefully you have your Bibles open now to Genesis 1. I'm going to read at verse 27 and forward. Then I'm going to skip down to this second account, Genesis 2, 18 to 25. So hear now the word of the Lord. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now we'll skip down to Genesis 2 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (coughs) Excuse me. As I mentioned, I want to look at this topic of gender through three distinct lenses. I want to talk about gender in creation, gender after the fall, and then gender within the redeemed community. So let's talk about first, uh, let's talk first about gender in creation. What can we say about men and women based on the text that we've just read? First thing I think we can say, and I think the first thing we must say, is that men and women are equal but different. If you have a very short attention span and you're not sure you can track all the way through the sermon, <clears throat> you, you would do well by simply writing that phrase down. Uh, men and women are equal but different. Uh, pretty much everything we're going to say from this point on is an expansion of that. That is the fundamental truth that we meet in the Bible with respect to men and women. We are equal but different. It is highly significant that both the male and the female are introduced in the Genesis narrative as having been created in the image and likeness of God. The equality of men and women is actually something that you only find within the biblical narrative in, in, in terms of the ancient world. I was, um, I was reading a book in preparation for a sermon that's going to be a, a couple weeks down the road, and uh, it was a, a, a book on the history of Greco-Roman sexuality. Um, there's this very naive notion that we can, in, in our culture right now, that we can sort of discard Christian norms and we'll just end up in some happy, undefined place. And anyone who studied history remembers what sexual norms were before Christianity. And, and they were not good. Like You should go and read some of the Roman and, and Greek theories on gender. Uh, there, some of the Greek theories are absolutely humorous. They thought that women were basically like cookies that weren't quite cooked all the way through. And that's, uh, I won't even go into, literally, that's a thing. They thought that that all humans should be men, but if the the cookies weren't left in the oven long enough, then they they came out gooey and woman-y. And you just think, okay, you have not thought deeply on this matter. You don't get the equality and dignity of men and women in cultures that have not been impacted by this text. Abigail Favalli says helpfully here, Genesis affirms a balance of sameness and differences between the sexes. This is a difficult but necessary balance to maintain. 
most theories of gender lose this balance, veering into extremes of uniformity, men and women are interchangeable, or polarity, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Both extremes lose the fruitful tension expressed in Genesis. Isn't that a lovely phrase? The fruitful tension between sameness, like equality with respect to dignity and, and, and identity and honor and all these kinds of things, but differentiation. That kind of fruitful tension is only found in the scriptures. So men and women are not interchangeable, but neither are they polar opposites of each other. The things they share are overwhelmingly significant. It is massively significant that every male and female has been created in the image and likeness of God. That is why, for example, the vast majority of commandments in the Bible are addressed to us as human beings, not specifically to men and women. So to be human is clearly the main thing. The, the difference between you and all the other animals is far greater than the difference between you and your spouse. Now, it may not feel like that every day. You may look at your spouse and say, th- I think I am married to a squirrel. What is happening over here? But you're not. Uh, you are married to a creature of, of incredible dignity and worth. And the things that you have in common as human beings are significant. Though it does matter that we are male and female. So there's a tension here. We need to be very careful as we try to thread this needle. We are not thinking biblically about human beings if we are exaggerating or minimizing the differences between men and women. All right, secondly, we see in the Genesis narrative that men and women are complementary. By complementary, we mean that they fit together in important and fruitful ways. They're, they're different, but different in ways that are good, different in ways that are helpful, different in ways that are significant. Because, of course, you can be different than things in a variety of, of ways. I am different than an orange, uh, for whatever that is worth. I am different than a squirrel, for whatever that is worth. But I am different than my wife in ways that actually lead to life, to breadth, to joy, to fruitfulness. That's what the Bible is saying. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, Genesis 2, 24. So the differences are part of the design. We come together and make one flesh in important ways. Genesis 2, 18 says that this is very important. It is not good that the man should be alone. And then it says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, some people don't like that phraseology. They're worried that it makes it sound as though the woman is inferior, that she was created to be the man's maid or his servant. But that's not what the word means. The word simply means a partner that corresponds to need. And actually, the word is most commonly used in the Bible with reference to God in places like Deuteronomy 33, 29. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. God is described as the helper, the partner that we need as human beings in order to be fruitful in the things that we were called to do. Well, so here. And of course, none of us would say, well, to call God our helper is to suggest that he's inferior to us. No, of course, that's not true. 
and neither does that apply with respect to men and women. The word simply means that we were created to be complementary partners in the work that God has given us to do. Thirdly, we see in this narrative that men and women are mutually dependent. They need each other. It is not good for a man to be alone or for a woman to be alone. The, the man was told to do some things that he cannot do without a woman. It's hard to be fruitful and multiply on your own. So he can't do what he was called to do. He can't be what he was called to be without the woman. And likewise, the woman can't do what she was called to do or be who she was called to be without the man. According to the Bible, we were created for God. We were, we were created, we talked about a couple weeks ago, we have this, this vertical port. So you're an open system. You were created to be in a relationship with God that changes you. And then talk laterally. You were created to be in a relationship with other people and those relationships are going to change you. But that most intimate relationship is the relationship between men and women. We were made for that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says here, human beings exist in duality. And it is in this dependence on the other that their creatureliness exists. We need each other. We were created for intimate friendship, missional partnership, and mutual delight. All right, so that's, that's the plan. But as you know, if you've read past pages one and two in your Bible, then great injury has been done to the plan. We are not now the people that we were created and intended to be. And so we need to talk now about how gender has been affected by the fall. Now, again, all this is foundational. We're going to touch on some things pretty briefly that then we'll have whole messages on, we'll drill down on. I mentioned uh, that we're going to be talking about marriage next week. Uh, we're also going to have a message on the fall. But for now, I just want you to think about how the fall affected us specifically with respect to gender. So flip forward in your page, or in your Bible, probably one more page. Now you're on page three. See, we are making progress. Page three, I want you to be looking at Genesis 3.16. After the man and the woman made the decision to eat the forbidden fruit hoping to be like God with the ability to determine right and wrong without reference to God, they immediately began to change in ways that they had not anticipated. When God came looking for them, they hid from God. So we discovered that they no longer felt comfortable in the presence of God. And as we keep reading, we discover they no longer felt comfortable in the presence of each other. God spoke to each of them in turn explaining the consequences associated with their actions. When he spoke to the woman, God said, Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, not everyone loves, this is the new ESV, if you're sitting there reading an ESV from, I think, prior to 2016, so if you have an older one, it doesn't say that. This is a uh, re-released or upgraded translation. Some don't love it, so I will show it to you as well in the NIV the NIV has it as your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What the ESV is trying to do there is introduce the issue of, of conflict. That it's not just that the woman loves her husband, but he's mean to her. The, the issue actually is that both the man and the woman have been affected now by disordered desires. 
Derek Kidner provides a, a pretty simple, straightforward uh, definition of the main point here. He says, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. While even pagan marriages can rise far above this, the pull of sin is always toward it. After the fall, marriage is going to be complicated by disordered desires in both the man and the woman. Lust is going to complicate love. Resentment is going to complicate responsibility. Instead of complementing each other, we're going to be in constant conflict with each other. We're going to try and control one another. And a great deal of the joy and intimacy that was supposed to characterize this relationship is going to be lost. That's our situation after the fall. We were meant to pull together in our common mission, but now we are engaged in a giant tug of war, and there are no winners, only losers. As an observer of human history and as an observer of human beings, I don't know how anyone could argue with that. Men and women are falling out with each other and falling further and further away from each other to the great detriment of humanity. Many observers, for example, have noted that a a huge gap is opening up all over the Western world between men and women in terms of their views on a variety of things, but most notably social issues and political issues. And so many of you perhaps have seen this slide uh, indicating a, a, a huge gap opening up. You see it in South Korea, you see it in the U.S., Germany, the U.K., between the views, how views of women have changed versus how the views of men have changed in politics. Uh, Women, by and large, in the Western world have bought very heavily into all these narratives around oppression, intersectionality, DEI, etc., to an extent that men have not. Young men are finding the politics of young women impossible to navigate. They're also struggling to understand the constantly changing rules governing social, romantic, and sexual etiquette. So much so that a disturbing number of young men are no longer even making the effort. Jean Twenge, in her study, quotes one young man as saying, the internet has made it so easy to gratify basic social and sexual needs that there's far less incentive to go out into the meat world and chase those things. Because of the, the sort of crassness of the, the internet and, and Netflix and whatnot, most people my age and older actually assume that young people are more you know, perverted or, or sexually deviant than they were back in our day. You may be surprised to discover that that's not exactly true. Many contemporary authors are actually writing about a crisis, a crisis of, of sexual inactivity amongst young people in their fertile years. It's becoming an existential crisis, actually. You may be surprised to discover that young men in particular are having less sex today than they have been in any previous generation in living memory. Now, they're all addicted to pornography, as Gene Twenge's survey indicates, but very few of them are having actual sex with real live human beings because The approach towards real live human females right now is filled with landmines they cannot navigate. Now you might say, well, good, good. What comes around goes around, 
right? How about them apples? It's been real tough for women in our culture for generations. And so now cry me a river if the shoe is on the other foot. This delight in revenge against men is remarkably prevalent in our culture right now. You see it in Hollywood, you see it in the media, and you see it in the classroom. And that is a major reason why fewer and fewer young men are enrolling in college and university. According to a recent Pew Research study, today only 39% of young men who have completed high school are enrolled in college, down from 47% in 2011. Women vastly outnumber men now on college and university campuses because fewer and fewer young men want to spend $30,000 a year being told that they are what's wrong with the world. And as Christians, this is one of the things we need to opt out of because we are not in the revenge game, we are in the reconciliation game. Our goal is not to punish men. Our goal is to reconcile men and women. In Canada, we have to bring in a million immigrants a year just to keep the economy from grinding to a halt because men and women have never been further apart than they are right now. They're not getting married. They're not having sex. They're not having babies. And that's a problem. That's a problem that was predicted all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Which leads us to our third question. How should our approach to gender be different within the redeemed community? What should men and women look like in here? As we talked about last week, to be a saved person is to have entered the state of begun recovery of human nature. Thomas Boston said that, but of course he was paraphrasing the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3. That's what happens when you get saved. He breaks the power of canceled sin. To, to be a Christian is to have stopped falling away from God. It is to have stopped falling away from each other. It is to have begun the process of recovery. With our healed hearts and having breathed in the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have ceased descending. And in fact, we have started to rise back up to God, back up to ourselves, and back up to one another. To go back to our anchor analogy from last week, in our fallen state, we were chained to an anchor that was pulling us down, 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 away from God, and away from our original dignity and purpose. So to be saved is to have that anchor cut so that you're no longer falling away. It's to have your heart healed It's to have breathed in the Holy Spirit so that you begin to rise. Now, interestingly, the Bible tells us that once once the anchor is cut, once you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you are supposed to participate with the process of restoration. This can be confusing to us because as evangelicals, we talk so much about grace and we sing songs that, that are good songs, you know. Jesus paid it all, right? And so it's all about Jesus. We're not supposed to say, you know, Jesus paid it most and then I did the rest. Uh, like, that's not how it goes. So, so we have been conditioned from Sunday school upwards to say, like, God does it all. And that is true, but we need to just put in brackets with respect to our salvation. God does it all. But actually, in the Bible, once you have a healed heart, And once you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, 
you are expected to participate in the process of sanctification. So theologians will often say salvation is a one-handed work, like God does it all, dead people are not helpful, blah, blah, blah. You know all the theologian jokes. Um, So salvation is a one-handed work. Only God can heal your heart. Only God can fill your heart with the Holy Spirit. Say amen to that. Amen. Okay. But then once that has happened to you, you can and you must participate in the work of your restoration. That's why there are commands given in the New Testament addressing redeemed husbands and wives. Why why would there be commands given to redeemed husbands and wives if you were not actually capable of fulfilling them? And, and you are. You are now in a process of begun recovery. So again, that chain has been cut. There's no longer anything dragging you down. Your heart has been healed. There's no leaks in the boat, whatever your preferred analogy. You've breathed in the Holy Spirit. So you are rising already. There's a natural lift in you, but now you need to pull. You need to swim because you're alive. You need to grow. You can do this stuff. So very quickly, as opposed to the fractiousness and discord that is characteristic of unredeemed men and women out there in the world, in here, inside the community of the redeemed, the relationship between the sexes should be characterized by three things. Peace, love, and respect. Now we're going to hit all these again in in, in greater detail later on in the series, but let me just walk you through them real quick. First of all, within the redeemed community, men and women are supposed to be at peace with who they are and with how they are. Specifically, women are supposed to be at peace with being women. In 1 Timothy 2.15, for example, Paul says about women that she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Save from what is, is the question you're supposed to ask when you, when you read that verse. Because that can't be, Paul can't be saying that simply by having a baby, women are going to heaven. That, it, he's obviously not saying that. I, I've never read a scholar who thinks he's saying that. So save from what? Obviously, we can only be saved from our sins by the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're only saved from our sins by the cross. So save from what? Paul is saying that women will be saved from resentment, from fractiousness, and from frustration by embracing the dignity and honor of being a mother. You were were made for this, literally. Do Do you know what a woman is? 20 years ago, that would have been a rhetorical question. Uh, It's not now. In fact, there was a a documentary that made a lot of money going around on the internet over the last two years, basically showing how ridiculous it is that almost no one in our culture can answer the question, what is a woman? We know what the answer is. Abigail Favalli provides a very straightforward answer. She says, a woman is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life. Leave that up for a minute. Abigail Favalli is a, is a brilliant academic, and that is the sort of answer you'll get from a brilliant academic. I bet you she spent weeks crafting that. Every word of that is gold. 
Let, let me just go through that. A woman is the kind of human being. So let's pause there. She's putting the emphasis on the fact that at the end of the day, the most important thing you need to know about a woman is that she's a human being, created in the image and likeness of God. So everything you want to say about how awesome humans are, that's true of women. So we need to start there. And it also indicates that she's the same as the man. So everything good you want to say about the woman as a human being, you also have to say about the man. A woman is the kind of human being. Now listen to this. Whose body is organized? Whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life? That's brilliant. She's basically rooting gender in biology. And again, 20 years ago, nobody would have noticed that or thought to remark on that. Well, obviously gender is rooted in biology. Obviously, if you live in 1995. Uh, that is not the case anymore. In fact, that's why, you know, so if you're my age or older and you're confused by all the, the gender conversation and you just get lost, like if, if, when people start talking about gender in this culture, if you feel like I feel when people start talking about advanced physics, where you're just like, whoo, like lots of numbers being thrown around, lots of terms I don't understand, but I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm, yes, sir. Right, wonderful, good, where's the cookie, right? I have no idea what you're talking about. And a lot of us feel like that when the gender conversation comes out because just terms are being thrown around that we have no idea what you're talking about and we have to go look things up on the interweb because we don't know what these things are. And, and a lot of the reason for that is that about 30 years ago, gender and biology started being untethered from each other. You know, when I was a kid, you would say, my gender is male, just because you didn't want to say my sex is male. That sounds awkward, right? Uh, But it was clear those words were synonymous. But they're not now. In, In today's culture, gender is a psychological construct. Gender is how you feel. Gender is how you wish to present yourself. And it has nothing to do with your biology. In fact, Part of being free, according to today's culture, is not allowing your biology to tyrannize you. Even that phrase is ridiculous, that your biology would tyrannize you. Biology is being presented to our young people as oppressive. They're saying it's oppressive when the doctor pulls a baby out of the womb and says, it's a boy. Who is the doctor to assign a gender reality to your child. You should just say, it's a lump. (laughs) And then you wait and see how the lump wishes to identify. That's, That's where we're at because gender has been separated from issues of biology. But Favalli, a scholar, is putting them back together. She's saying a woman is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life. That word potential is a kindness, it's accurate and kind. Because maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I'm a woman and I've never had a baby. Am I, are you saying I'm not, a, I'm not a human or I'm not a woman? Like, what are you saying? Or maybe you're saying my, chi- my childbearing years are long, long behind me. Are you saying I'm less a woman now? No. We're talking about your body. We're talking about your body chemistry. A woman is the kind of human being whose entire body, the shape of it, you know, right now we're involved in this kind of mass hysteria as a culture where we're pretending that men and women don't have differences in terms of their body shape. And, and it's young women in sports who are paying a price for that. 
Because our bodies are different. A female body has been created specifically, like her design specifics are related to this ability to, to gestate a child. And so she has a shape that allows her to grow a 10-pound baby inside her body. And then wonder of wonders, two, I'm going to put my hands in my pocket right now. <laughs> to deliver that baby into the world. God bless her. Male bodies were not created with that capacity. In fact, the design specialty of the man appears to be related to production and protection. Right? Again, 20 years ago, that would not have been funny or interesting. But now it feels courageous to acknowledge biology. Again, a woman is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life. So women, even if you haven't had a a baby, you need to understand that your body has been designed, its shape and its chemistry. A woman's hormones are different than a, than a man's hormones. Women are great at bonding because that's part of how your chemistry is designed. It's, it's harder for men. Women, so there's all kinds of things we could point to here. Point is, this is a brilliant definition. A woman is the kind of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life. That's reality. And nothing good will come from pretending we don't know that. Only anxiety, stress, division, and discord will come from pretending we don't know that. But peace will come when we stop kicking against the goads. Peace will come when we love and lean into design. In addition to peace... The Apostle Paul calls on men and women to lean into love and respect in their dealings with each other. In Ephesians 5.33, he says to the husbands, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Peace, love, and respect. That is what gender relations should look like within the redeemed community. Now, very quickly, in the time that we have left, I just want to hit upon some very practical applications. First of all, given all that we've just read and what we've just seen in the text, I think it ought to be very clear that Christians need to say no to the gender revolution that is raging outside in the culture. Just like last week, if it is true that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, then obviously, as Christians, we need to say no to abortion and maid, medical assistance and dying. Well, so to here. If it is true that God has created us male and female, if it is true that our gender is assigned by God, not chosen by us, if it is true that gender is part of the created order and not merely a social construct, if those things are true, then we need to opt out. In fact, we need to push back on the gender revolution. We cannot go along. We dare not go along. We were called to be salt and light And there is a desperate need for us to do that right now on this issue. In our culture right now, there has been so much deconstruction around issues of gender and sexuality that our children literally have no idea who they are. The confusion out there is pervasive and it has come on quick. 
Abigail Favalli, in her book, The Genesis of Gender, points out that prior to 2012, there is no scientific evidence of adolescent girls experiencing gender dysphoria at all. What we are witnessing is a novel phenomenon. She goes on to say, using data from the National Health Service in the UK, in less than a decade, gender referrals had increased by almost 2,000%. What that tells you is it's got nothing to do with biology. You don't get 2,000% increases in in the rate of, of any kind of disorder that's related to biology. This is a social contagion. Same thing is happening in Canada and the U.S., It's happening all over the Western world. Our kids, particularly our girls, have no idea who they are. We've spent 30 years disparaging traditional womanhood and vilifying men. (laughs) Well, what does that leave you with? Mass hysteria and confusion. And that's what we have. Now, the therapists out there are telling us that we just need to go along with it. It's called affirming care. So the idea is if your 12-year-old daughter comes to you and says she's a boy trapped in a girl's body, well, you go ahead and give her powerful hormones that will rearrange her internal chemistry. And if that doesn't work, then you sign her up for some invasive surgeries that will make it impossible for her to ever have a child in the future. That's the advice we're getting from the experts. We should chemically and surgically castrate our kids because they're confused by the culture we've created. To that madness, we need to say no. No, we're not playing that game in here. We believe in transformation, not transitioning. We believe that the answer to this anxiety is men and women, boys and girls, being reconciled to their creator and to creation and to their bodies through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't solve these kinds of problems with chemicals and a scalpel. We solve these kinds of problems with grace and supplies of the Spirit. If there was ever a time for us to stand our ground and speak the truth in love, it is right here, right now. We need to do this for the health of our children, for the safety of our children, and for the survival of the human species. We cannot get on board and we need to lovingly and firmly push back on the gender revolution in our culture. Then secondly, based on what we've seen in these foundational texts, I think it's important for us to say that the church should be a place where diversity, equality, and fruitfulness are celebrated. In the church, we should love the fact that men and women are equal but different. Can I just tell you something? We are not without blame in the confusion that exists in our culture, the confusion that has been the seedbed of this anxiety. Because even in the church, we have not done a good job of celebrating the fact that men and women are equal but different. I would say, by and large, over the course of my lifetime, I have watched that belief ebb out of the church like grains of sand through an hourglass. Meaning, when I was a child, I remember that, yeah, we actually did used to talk about this a lot. Even we would sing like this. When I was a child, I remember almost every Sunday, the worship leader in our church would say, on verse 3, now the ladies. And you'd hear this beautiful melody, and then the men, and, and, and now all together. And so you just grew up saying, man, men and women are awesome, but different. 
But now, I think, cowed by the culture, we're just like, oh yeah, no, that's right. Men and women are exactly the same. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, and, and we haven't stood our ground. We haven't pushed back. And the chickens are coming home to roost. We're not without guilt. And, and so part of how we turn that around is by getting joyful, getting intentional about the fact that men and women are equal and different. Need to celebrate that. Need to lean into that. But to be clear, that means leaning out of how the culture defines us as men and women. We cannot simply take cultural norms and sprinkle a little Jesus on them. No, we have to go back to our original design because that's what grace does. Grace restores nature. Grace is given to help us heal. Grace is given to help us change and become. So in the church, men and women should be treated as equal and different. We should have categories in the church for distinct responsibilities. We should value different perspectives. We should strive for complementarity, not sameness. J.I. Packer says helpfully here, the man-woman relationship is intrinsically non-reversible. This is part of the reality of creation, a given fact that nothing will change. Certainly, redemption will not change it, for grace restores nature, not abolishes it. So in the church, to the extent that we have received grace, to the extent that we are working with the grain of creation, we should see equality, diversity, and fruitfulness. When men and women come together, marriage, babies, health, life, joy, generally result, which is pretty much the opposite of what we're seeing right now in the culture. Can I tell you something? Do you know what will make a very compelling argument for the truth of Christianity? Do you know what might just be our best apologetic for Christianity over the years and decades ahead? Happy marriages and beautiful babies. If we have that in here, then then we aren't going to need to argue theology with our friends and neighbors. We can just say, hey, You guys have been in control of the culture now for two generations. And what has that got you? Nothing but chaos, decline, division, and death. But over here in the church, we've got joy, we've got harmony, we've got life, and we've got fruitfulness. So why don't you come on over and we can talk about some things. We can talk about who created us, what happened to us, and how we can be saved and restored through the person and work of God of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the beauty and timelessness of your design, and Lord, we are thankful for the power of saving grace. We're power, thankful as well for the power of the Holy Spirit who changes us by one degree of glory to the next, who lifts us up out of the depths to which we have fallen and restores to us the dignity, the purpose, and the joy we had at first. Oh, Lord, we are thankful for these things. We rejoice in these things. Help us to speak of these things winsomely with our friends and loved ones, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.